This podcast may contain explicit language, which is distinct from shall, and in point of fact, as to this specific episode you're about to hear, actually does not contain explicit language. It's Monday, August 15th, 2022, from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca, and there's someone I'd like you to meet. Meet Freya, a walrus with a thing for sunbathing on small boats. Less sunbathing, more boarding and capsizing boats, going by that video from the German broadcaster DW. But Freya, named for the Norse goddess of love, fertility, and battle, became beloved then embattled in Norway when she showed up in harbors, docks, and on boats. According to the Norwegian outlet NRK, many wanted to immortalize their encounter with the 500-kilogram wild animal. According to the AP, the 600-kilogram female walrus, known affectionately as Freya, became a popular attraction in Norway in recent weeks. And according to DW, The damage from a 700-kilo walrus on your boat can be extensive. So if you're sensing Freya's taking on larger and larger dimensions as the myth grows Paul Bunyan-like, you would be correct. Watch out for the big girls, I guess. Freya is fiercely unapologetic about taking up space in a man's world. And as more and more tourists flocked to her and took pictures and turned her into a celebrity, the Minister of Fisheries, Frank Baki Jensen, knew what he had to do. He shot and killed her. What? cried everyone in the world. You killed an adorable walrus? You killed a walrus? How could, could, could chew you? What I should have told you also is that Freya, the goddess, was not just goddess of love, fertility, and battle, but also death. And while the Nordic people named Freya, they also named walrus, all walruses, walri, walrus, for horse and whale. The Norwegians, I have come to conclude, are unlike us. When I said everyone was up in arms, and yes, I include Lubbock TV station KLBK, which covered the walrus execution extensively, I mean everyone was up in arms except, it seems, the Norwegians. The Norwegians seem to understand that this is the way things go. The director of fisheries made the call, and then the prime minister Jonas Gar Stora told NRK that he agreed with the Directorate of Fisheries. But we all know better, right? America has it figured out in a way Norway never could. But Norway was ranked the happiest country in the world in 2017 and hasn't finished outside the top 10 in well over a decade. The U.S. was 17. Norway is the richest country in the world. Everyone born in Norway is worth about a quarter of a million dollars by dint of their claim to the Sovereign Wealth Fund. Judgmental Lubbock, Texas, going by the homepage of KLBK, is replete with, well, I'll just read all the headlines. Head-on collision kills man, 23-year-old ejected, killed after crash with tree. Lubbock Police Department update on crash on North Loop 289. Clovis PD screening for suspect in teen's death. And then there's this one story. How do you pronounce Lubbock? Is it Lubbock or Lubbock? City Council taking a poll. Again, maybe the Norwegians have something figured out. Or maybe not. They're mean to walruses. We love them. Or maybe it's that they value humanity, order, safety, and here's a big one, unsentimentality. Walruses have been known to drag humans who get too close to them, drag them underwater and kill them. Maybe Norwegians just hate cute sea mammals. They did only recently ban seal hunts. 
But a lot of fractious, angry societies also have heightened feelings over hurt animals or obviously manipulative news stories. I think maybe the Norwegians experience deep emotions and are in touch with their humanity, but they're just not very sentimental. There's a difference. Or maybe I'm wrong. My expertise in Norway is I once read a book and last weekend I saw Worst Person in the World on Hulu. I'm not really in a position to pronounce Norway advanced or sophisticated or even right. It is a foreign country. Lubbock's in my own country and I'm not even in a position to pronounce it Lubbock. I do know that there's one less lost walrus in the world for sure, but maybe there's also one more dopey Instagrammer who'll be walking around next week who never got to take that selfie with an Oslo-based walrus, but also will live to regret it. On the show today, you think that's news? You're wrong. But I will spiel about we're in a recent period of relative newslessness. But first, it's the one-year anniversary of the fall of Kabul. I sat down with Elliot Ackerman, a former Marine who fought the Taliban and who has just written the fifth act, America's End in Afghanistan. We puzzle over what we and he learned and lost. Elliot Ackerman is a former Marine. He then became a CIA tactical officer. He served in Iraq and Afghanistan. He's the recipient of the Bronze Star, the Silver Star, the Purple Heart, and a couple medals or awards you can't pin on your chest, like a finalist for the National Book Award. His new book is The Fifth Act, America's End in Afghanistan. It is crafted fantastically well. It is the only book I've ever read where the word routine becomes a gut punch thanks to his experiences and his skill. Elliot, welcome to The Gist. Thanks so much for having me on. So this book does a lot of things and it weaves through experiences cutting back and forth in time. But it also, at least pressingly and in the moment, tells about your experiencing helping people evacuate from Afghanistan. So I know that you were actually at a lunch with the uh, ambassador to Afghanistan when the withdrawal was announced, but that was different from the chaos that happened a few weeks later. Can you take me through the weeks leading up to the actual collapse and what kind of, what were you hearing and what were you thinking about in terms of, ooh, this is going much worse than I even anticipated? Well, the withdrawal was announced in April of uh, 2021, uh, and that's the, the the lunch that you mentioned, which I write about a little bit in the book. And I just, by total coincidence, um, the Afghan ambassador had become a, a friend, and we had a lunch scheduled for the same day that President Biden announced the withdrawal that at that time was scheduled for September 11th, 2021. And then really from April until August, uh, which is when the withdrawal finally occurred at the end of August of last year, you know, it was sort of just this, um, these these months were, you know, filled with anticipation as to, you know, what is going to happen? How are we going to pull this off? And most importantly, you know, what is going to happen to all of our Afghan allies and those who had aligned themselves both with the U.S. government, but also with the government of the Republic of Afghanistan? You know, what's going to happen to these people? Because they are not going to be able to live safely in an Afghanistan that is 
ruled and governed by the Taliban. And so increasingly, there's sort of this just this build of voices asking those questions, which kind of starts to reach a crescendo uh, by late July and early August as cities around Afghanistan begin, begin falling to the Taliban. And it becomes obvious that the Taliban are going to take the whole country in one foul swoop. And none of the Afghan government is going to uh, endure past our pullout. Um, and then that crescendo, uh, you know, really peaks in the last two weeks of August and the evacuations out of the, the airport in Kabul. So when you were you were writing about this in the New York Times, you were talking to people, high up people in government, were you getting satisfactory answers? I mean, they're not going to, even though you have, you know, status as a CIA veteran, they're not going to reveal to you tactics and operations. But was there a sense of uh, foreboding or were they at least in their words saying, we've got this covered, we have an evacuation plan? Well, I think it's I think it's important to kind of unpack the plane that this book is sort of written on in so much as it's not as though I'm like calling up high ranking officials and other folks to, you know, demand answers from them. It's just many this war's gone on for twenty years. So for I mean, I'm in my early forties. Um, you know, this thing began when I was twenty one and my friend group, you know, the people I've grown up with, we all grew up together in these wars. So now suddenly we're 20 years into this thing and the people I'm talking to about this, you know, I'm, I was a Marine, but now I'm a journalist. You know, one of the people I write about in the book is Congressman Seth Moulton. You know, we were contemporaries in the Marines. Now he's a congressman. You know, other people I write about in the book are comrades of mine from the Marines who have either stayed in or left to go work at intelligence agencies. And now they're, you know, relatively senior up in those organizations. So those are the people I'm sort of just having conversations with and we're all kind of wondering what's going to occur. But those are more, you know, those are personal relationships that are also official relationships, if you if you follow me. And then as Kabul starts to collapse, the hierarchy collapses too. And everyone, I think, in, the, in those days is just trying to do the right thing to help these Afghans we've worked with get out uh, because their lives are now under threat. Right. Um, the, the chaos of the last days. And there you are working the phones, talking to admirals, uh, talking to the woman who runs the Sesame Street to get her puppeteers out, coordinating withdrawals from Italy. But you're successful to a large extent. And I just got the impression or I had the question, you know, is this guy who's actually out of government doing the job that we would want our government to have done? You know, I and it's not you, it's everyone in your friend group and the people who had connections with interpreters over 20 years, giving names and code words to people trying to get into the gate as those planes were leaving Kabul. But what about that question? Were, was there any competent or many competent members of the actual government having the same impact that well-meaning, vol essentially volunteers from the outside were having? What you saw happen last year was, in many respects, a crowdsourced evacuation where individual citizens were putting up money to fly private planes into Kabul, were making rosters of Afghans to be evacuated, were coordinating convoys of buses to get people into the airport, um, you know, and in my case, sort of leveraging old personal networks to try to you know, say, this is the group that's going to come in. Can you let them in? You're at the gate, you know, because several of the Marines at the airport, I just happened to, I happened to know them. Um, so, 
So you see this crowdsourced response that exists in tandem with what was our government response. And, you know, with regards to the government response, I just want to be very clear. You know, the, the soldiers and the Marines who were at the airport in those days, I mean, did a heroic job. They were placed in a horrible situation and, uh, and, and really outperformed given the circumstances. But then there is the, the government response, the administration response. And I think there are real questions as to whether or not the administration performed competently in terms of the procedures they had in place to get people out. I was angry, angrier than even when it played out. Angry as an American, as someone who thinks the government doesn't have overwhelming powers to recast the world. Look, they lost the war in Afghanistan, but at least they could have anticipated and done some planning. And I think your book is an indictment of the failure to do so. And even if someone wants to argue, was there a good way to withdraw from Afghanistan? I would have to say, this is certainly a bad way. Well, there were things that could have been done. Um, so this would occur differently. And there were, you know, there were vocal uh, there were people who were vocal uh, about that in that period from April up until August. Um, people like Representative Peter Meir or Jason Crow or Seth Moulton. I mean, this is a bipartisan group of, of veterans who serve in Congress who are basically they – were, they were saying – you know, we need to begin an evacuation process and evacuate people to Guam. Um, you know, this was done in the Vietnam War. It was done uh, with the Kurds uh, after the, the Gulf War. So saying you know, this needs to happen. Now, that being said, I want to make sure I'm fair. I understand why the administration felt that they were in a little bit of a pickle. Because if we announce our we, – when we announced our withdrawal in April, you might recall, you know, President Biden was saying kind of through the summer – the Afghan government's going to hold together. The Afghan army is an institution we've invested in deeply over 20 years. You know, they're, they're going to hold. And if we begin evacuating people from Afghanistan, that would only increase this vote of no confidence, which we had already, you know, which we had already given by saying we're leaving. Everyone's leaving. We're done here. It's like a run on a bank. We got to keep our money in the bank to install confidence. Only cut to when there was the run on the bank, you're the sucker who lost all his money. Well, exactly. So, but, you know, am I sympathetic to why the administration? Sure. Like, we can't. Yeah. Tough I'm sympathetic position. to that. Yeah. I'm sympathetic. That tough spot. You're in. tough spot. Yeah. Now you're as the administration betting that there will be what Nixon in Vietnam called the decent interval, meaning all U.S. troops will come out and there will be a period of time Maybe it's two years, maybe it's a year, maybe it's six months, maybe it's two months from the moment the last American leaves and the Afghan government collapses. And if you look to history, I mean, you know, the last U.S. service member leaves Vietnam in 1972. Saigon falls in 1975. The last Soviet soldier left Afghanistan in 1989. Najibullah, who was the president of Afghanistan, the, the Soviet appointed president, you know, it's three, it's, no, it's four years before he's killed. So I think the administration thinks they're going to get this decent interval. And then they don't. And the moment they didn't get the decent interval, that is when it just really turned to bedlam. And you could see it in August. There was no plan. Yeah. We're always fighting the last war, but you point out that in this case, we thought we were fighting the last withdrawal, and we weren't. History, history offers some precedent, but it's not exactly a roadmap. You know, you didn't plan your missions based on what, uh, what was the planning in Vietnam, for instance. No, and I think there, and there, again, um, 
you need to have contingency plans. If you don't have a contingency plan when you don't get what you want, that's when really bad things happen. Um, you know, not to back it up too far, but like, you know, like let's look at the Iraq war, for instance. In the Iraq war, when we invaded in 2003, the strategic plan was, well, we're going to be greeted as liberators because during the Gulf War, there's a Shiite uprising. You know, this is going to be like Europe in 1944. People are going to kiss us and throw flowers at our feet. And when that didn't happen, the coin the coin manual hadn't been written then, but uh, what was written were words like cakewalk. Right. And so when that didn't happen, there was no plan, and a long bloody insurgency followed. And so it's sort of the same thing. When the administration didn't get its decent interval, there was no plan, and the result was this, you know, collapse. That uh, at least my my window of it, I, I document in the book. So you mentioned Seth Moulton, Jason Crow. We could put Peter Mayer in the list. He's a Republican. But I knew that Moulton, especially, who did sort of a clandestine uh, trip to Afghanistan with Mayer at the time, I knew Moulton and Crow were very critical of the decision. And yet, when the shit hit the fan and Biden, President Biden took uh, an historic hit to his popularity, I also perceived that they were literally good soldiers. They weren't as critical as they could have been. And so this is a question drawing upon your expertise as a journalist and a reporter. But I think that if someone with more of an activist bent or outlook on the world, you know, if Jamal Bowman felt as burned in uh, policy that he was advocating by the administration, he would have let the administration have it. But Democrats within the fold did not. Do you think that the effect of that was... I don't know, to make it more possible that there is a screw up the next time to to have accountability uh, leech away from that moment. Anything like that? You know, I, 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 can't, I, you know, I don't presume to, to, to speak uh, for for them and, you know, to be in their heads. Um, but, you know, I, I I've, I've known them for a number of years and have a huge amount of respect for, you know, for all, all three of them. And I think in that moment, as again, as everything was collapsing, um, it wasn't about politics. I actually think they're you know these are guys who are just trying to do the right thing as they see it, um, which is get into you know get into Afghanistan, try to help, um, call, you know, leverage their networks. Um, so um, they t- both took a lot of heat, uh, and particularly uh, Seth for for showing up in Kabul, I think it was absolutely the right decision and the appropriate decision. Um, and I think that the, one of the things that was interesting was, you know, I've written about war in Iraq and Afghanistan for a long time. And particularly with Afghanistan, no one cared. I mean, no one cared about Afghanistan for years and years and years. I mean, there was a poll in 2018, Rasmussen before the midterms, put a poll in the field to kind of prioritize Americans' issues, what they cared about. When they asked about Afghanistan, 44% of Americans, it wasn't they didn't care about Afghanistan. They couldn't even tell you whether the war was still going on. They just forgot yeah. about it. So the it was so dis- what? What? <laughs> Afghanistan def- what? Are we still doing issue, yeah, yeah, are we still doing yeah. that? So what was interesting was to see how now suddenly – Everyone cared about Afghanistan again. And so you have to yourself, well, why does everyone care now? And the reason they care is because it suddenly became Biden was taking this huge hit to his popularity. Um, it looked really bad and it was threatening many other political things that he wanted to achieve with his administration. And I think in American life today, everything is politics. I mean, politics has seeped into every facet uh, of American life. So 
you might look at me skeptically, like I actually don't think what they were doing was politics. I think what they were doing was, you know, like me, they're vets and they sort of, you know, how, what am I going to do when Afghanistan ends? You know, how am I going to feel like I did the right thing? And like, I can get on a plane and I can try to help. And they got on a plane and they tried to help. Yeah, no, I, that's, that was my impression as well. And in fact, I think that everything being politics allowed the Biden administration, which I've been normally supportive of generally, allowed them to escape some criticism. And I fear, sure, the right, Fox News, they're going to criticize no matter what. And you kind of price that in and maybe you say, well, they're criticizing. You can't take that seriously. I wonder if the people who we depend on to make decisions correctly are going to take this into account. Are they going to be um, apolitical enough to look at this and maybe learn from the last mistake. Well, I, 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 I would say my experience at a number of junctures, whether or writing or speaking of the issue, was I was disappointed to see people that I typically believe are well-reasoned folks try to tell you that everything was going great in Afghanistan for political reasons. It's like, you know, turn on the television, you know, open, like I'm yeah. dealing with, like this is a disaster. And right, right. The well, host- what they say is what what they say if they want to be reasonable is something like, look, it was a disastrous war. There's no good way to withdraw, withdraw, uh, implying that every single other way was equally as bad. And that's just not as true. Or or, you know, or sort of, uh, you know, a little bit of hostility. Like, how could you say that? You know, it, it, just that this clear this clarity that that. You can't say that you can't say anything that's against the team. I mean, listen, I'll just be pointed about it. like partisanship makes you really dumb. When you mm-hmm. become a partisan, you kind of become stupid because there will be things happening right in front of your face that everyone can see the reality. But if you are so much on one team or the other, you know, you're going to ignore that reality you're, or you're going to have to shoehorn it into some ridiculous rationale that is dumb to try to explain it in a way that is advantageous to your team. And so there were moments in the Afghan withdrawal where, you know, you could see, I mean, obviously the right is going to clobber Biden with this in very partisan ways. And they did that. But you could see people on the left, you know, needing to shoehorn this into some victory narrative that, you know, sounded pretty, frankly, pretty silly. Yeah. Um, So let's go back a little bit. Do you think the war in Afghanistan was ever winnable as we defined winnable, as the U.S. defined winnable? I think it it begs questions as to what it means to to end a war, uh, and I don't say that I'm not trying to play semantic games here, but I think the the stories we tell ourselves about war are, are critically important. Um, so, was the Afghan war ever winnable? Well, we deter we at the end of the Afghan war determined that victory meant all of our troops would come home and there would be peace flourishing throughout Afghanistan, uh, independent of any type of U.S. presence. I don't think we've ever achieved that in any of the wars that we've nominally won. Um, certainly not the Second World War. We still have a massive yeah. presence in Europe, uh, a true presence that is, is whose relevance has been shown uh, to really matter since the, the Russian yes. invasion of Ukraine. Weirdly, we kind of achieved that in the war we lost with Vietnam. <laughs> I've actually, yes. The only time all of the troops come home is when we lose the war. And we lost in Afghanistan unequivocally. You know, what does it mean to win? Um, when we look at the war in Afghanistan, particularly from sort of 2002 and 2003 on, you know, a year and a half or two after we get there and it kind of stops being about Osama bin Laden and it starts becoming about nation building, no one can even agree what winning means. And I think the fact that, in you know, 
for 18 of the 20 years that we fight in Afghanistan, there isn't even a consensus on what the objective of the war is and what winning means is clearly one of the reasons why you lose the war. There has to be some type of clarity of mission that we never had in Afghanistan. And, you know, and this goes back to your idea of, you know, the way we wage wars. You know, is it about nation building? Is it about counterterrorism? Like, what is this war about? And no one ever really f- figured it out. And so, you know, the war ended um, the way that it did. And But it's also, I think, fascinating that, you know, you have 20 years of sort of a rudderless war, but the way it ends is so sharp and so clear that in many ways the ending is sort of the outlier of the entire war and sort of this, you know, the war the war begins with a rapid blitzkrieg into Kabul and the Northern Alliance and Americans, we take Kabul, all of Afghanistan seems as though we've won. And the way the war ends is a Taliban blitzkrieg into Kabul and it seems as though they've won. Um, but, you know, the ball keeps bouncing in Afghanistan. And, you know, we had the recent news that Ayman al-Zawahiri, uh, the leader of al-Qaeda, was killed in Kabul. And, um, you know, America might be done with Afghanistan, but I do not think Afghanistan is done with America. Elliot Ackerman is a former White House fellow and Marine, served five tours of duty in Iraq and Afghanistan, where he received the Silver Star, the Bronze Star, the Purple Heart. His new book is The Fifth Act, America's End in Afghanistan. Elliot, thanks so much. Thanks for having me. And now the spiel. There's no news. I don't mean there's no incremental breaking news on Carton Gate. Nope, not just that. I do not mean given the lack of news, the Just a News Show will be laying fallow for this period. No, 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 no. I'm just saying that we are in a time right now, last couple days, maybe a little more, where there aren't big, new, important, different things being covered or maybe to be covered. I read the New York Times cover to cover today and yesterday. That's it. I said, I went back to see if I could wring some meaning out of the story of lack of Los Angeles lawn lushness. I was luckless in that regard. Sure, things are happening. The Kenyan election was decided. The Secretary of Defense has COVID. Quick, when I said Secretary of Defense, what name popped in your head? Was it Lloyd Austin? Not a criticism if it wasn't. The fewer wars the U.S. has, the less you should know the Secretary of Defense. That's progress. But what I can do is prove that we are in a no-news period. In America, the most powerful medium for news is still television, and the marquee spot for television news, that'd be the Sunday shows. They pay the hosts well and funnel attention and interest to these shows. And yesterday... No one showed up. Sorry, Margaret Brennan showed up. Bless you, Margaret Brennan. But over on this week, this week, it wasn't George Stephanopoulos we got. Here now, co-anchor Jonathan Carl. Good morning and welcome to this week. As we come on, on Fox the- News, they just named a new host for their Sunday show, Shannon Bream, former Miss America top 10 finisher. But who showed up for the first show after that big announcement? I'm Jillian Turner. A judge unseals the warrant behind the unprecedented search of a former president's home. On NBC, Chuck Todd wasn't there, but Andrea Mitchell was. And maybe not all there or all there at the same time the teleprompter was there. But she did host. 
And when we come back, why Democrats and even some Republicans are looking rather differently at the midterm, at November's outlook, and whether or not that red wave may be just like less of a wave. Stay with us. And on CNN, where their Sunday show, State of the Union, has two hosts to draw from, Jake Tapper and Dana Bash, they went with a third choice. Brianna Keeler, who pursued her querulous style in the face of either a guest or a satellite connection that was just not having it. We don't know whether or not these are, are classified and rise to the level. But the second thing we don't know is, are they a national security threat? Attorney General Garden could have gone you to know court to not? enforce the subpoena that Sir, he had. Do you know, do you know uh, they're not? Asking the court to demand that Donald Trump deliver the materials to the court and said he spent nine hours in his home. That rises to the highest level. We give them authority to be intrusive and invasive, but and that's have, to be used sparingly. They had concern, uh, there are other they options had that are available to him. Uh, the Sir, fact that they spent they nine hours in Trump's residence, they're going to have to justify that. I don't know if the problem was technical or that Representative Mike Turner just pretended it was technical, but nothing stopped Keeler from cross-examining a guest over his objections and our comprehension. Not going to play. That wasn't the only exchange. There were several exchanges where she jumped on him and asked questions and he either didn't hear or pretended not to hear. And we, as the viewers, learn nothing. This prompted Rex Chapman to tweet approvingly of the interview to his 1.2 million followers. Mediaite, Mediaite, declared Keeler asking unresponded to questions, the media winner of the day. Well, I don't know. I don't know what to think of that story, except it wasn't a story. Neither was that interview, neither were the Sunday shows. And Haish has died, which is sad. She also hasn't been in a movie of consequence in 25 years. And a Norwegian walrus bought the farm or was forcibly shown the farm by his Nordic hosts. You know that because I led with that. Because there is no news today. And that's fine. There is still a 22-minute news hole on the networks and a, I don't know, 25-ish page news hole in the nation's great newspapers. By the way, Lloyd Austin, wait, can you place the name? Yes, SecDef. He getting COVID is news because COVID's newsy, but what is COVID really? It's an infection where the federal guidelines say you should stay home for five days, but if others come into contact with you, they needn't quarantine. It's a headline about an important federal official being inconvenienced. Some other members of Congress are headed to Taiwan now, but they're not Nancy Pelosi, and even if they were, what would it occasion? A couple missiles lobbed into the sea. In Russian nefariousness, Brittany Griner, still detained. Ukrainians, still using HIMARS to thwart ground progress. It's all still. They say no news is good news, and that could be true. There was real news at the end of last week, Salman Rushdie's attack. That was horrible and undoubtedly news. Now we are waiting on the motive. No one knows the motive, says the New York Times. AP reports the motive for the attack was unclear, State Police Major Eugene Staniszewski said. Huh, unclear. Well, between, I don't know, drug deal gone wrong and the fatwa, I'd bet on the fatwa. But that will be, when we figure it out, that will be a big news story, actual news. Now, I did use this newsless period to read three very good stories. One was a pretty short one. Great pictures, though. Catherine Rampell's foray into an IRS 
cafeteria really drives home how behind the times the IRS is. Maybe they did need all that funding. And check out the tingle tables. I don't want to give away more than the tingle tables. The New Yorker, this is about a week old, I got to it, had a great excerpt from Peter Baker and Susan Glasser's book about how General Milley navigated the whole Trump presidency thing. Read it. Tell me if you thought General Milley, though principled, didn't write that great a resignation letter. And then there's Caitlin Dickerson's story in The Atlantic, An American Catastrophe, The Secret History of U.S. Government's Family Separation Policy. I had this thing open in my browser, I don't know, a few thousand words for like four days. But a story of that length, even if I know I got to read it, it's so unappetizing. I approached it out of a sense of duty, and I didn't really tackle it. But today, it came in the mail in the form of the Atlantic print version. Such a great read. Horrible stories online are doubly horrible, which makes them, I think, somehow less impactful. You're fighting or filtering the horror. Give me print every time. But not in newspapers, not in newspapers from today or yesterday. We'd have been well served if during times like this, the big newspapers give us a public service message. You know, page four, Read a novel, just huge letters, try a novel. Or today could say, eh, you know, you can go online, you can watch Dr. Oz shop for crudite. That's fine, that counts. Or um, the Mets are 17 and three in their last 20, which I know you probably don't care about, but substitute your own basically irrelevant sport fun fact right there. Just admit it and don't try to turn the lack of news into something newsworthy by bombast graphics or not slowing down when you interview a representative from Congress. And I'll speak to you all tomorrow. I make this vow. News or no news. I've got things to say. They might be urgent. They might be breaking. They might just be stories. Or perhaps I will give you the tale of a group of Laplanders shunning a beached narwhal as covered by local news channel 8 Lubbock. Or maybe Lubbock. That's it for today's show. Corey Wara is the GIST's assistant producer. Joel Patterson is the GIST's senior producer. Michelle Pesca is special liaison for Seafauna Fjord integration. The GIST is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to advertisecast.com slash the GIST. Oomperu, jeeperu, And thanks for listening. <laughs>